What's going on, guys? It's your boy Daniel DeBrock here, host of the Stack String Podcast. Welcome to another episode. Today, this is the second time we are going to be doing a solo cast. So I'm going to be doing a QA uh, podcast today. Um, I've had a lot of questions over the last little bit, uh, and I figure that some of the ones that I've had when I do my Q&As on Instagram uh, worth a little bit more of an explanation than what I'm able to give on uh, Instagram, where you kind of are limited in terms of how in-depth you can actually go. So uh, before we get going, make sure you don't be a dick. Subscribe to the podcast. I put out tons and tons and tons of free content. Make sure you subscribe, share with your friends, do all that fun stuff, and help support my podcast And so I can stop being homeless and do something with my life. So let's uh, let's get going. So first question, uh, and, and this is actually based off questions I think I got over the last like maybe two weeks or something like that. Uh, so first question is, how should I set up and progress my diet? So this is a this is a question I actually get quite a bit, and obviously there's a lot of different potential means of of doing that. So I think the best place to start is going to be with a needs analysis. Right now, I'm not just going to throw a bunch of words at you. I'm going to actually give you the process that I go through. So essentially, when you're evaluating the diet, you need to understand the lifter. So uh, if, if I'm coaching someone or if I'm just starting to work with someone, I always need to make sure that I can build what I call a lifter profile. I need to understand who this individual is. It's important to understand their goals. It's important to understand you know, certain things about their, their training, but it's also really important to understand them as an individual. And if you guys have listened to, to my podcast, if you guys have followed my content, you'll know that uh, nutrition is much, much more than just input and output. Uh, yes, that's what gets the results, but ultimately adherence to those variables is going to be predicated on a lot of things outside of the gym. And so, you know, you need to understand what your current context is. Are you, uh, you know, a, a single guy who's got a pretty easy job, very low stress, lots of free time on his hands? Or are you a, you know, married woman with three kids who's got a job and also is going to school, right? Those are two completely different contexts and they're going to have different uh, stresses or different levels of stress. They're going to have different obligations. They're going to have different uh, types of moods and their response to, to a variety of different things that are actually coming into their lives on a regular basis are going to be drastically different. So understanding your general context, right? Like what does your day-to-day life look like? How frequently are you experiencing, you know, these high stress uh, situations or maybe moderate stress or maybe you're not stressed at all? All of these things are really important to know. What is your general mood like? Is Are you in a good mood generally? Are you really negative? Are you, uh, you know, pretty positive? Are you somewhere sort of in between? How busy are you? So where's your time being allocated? Do you have a job where you have to work 80 hours a week or are you working part time or are you unemployed? You know, if you're unemployed, sure, you might have tons of time, but maybe you're a little depressed because you are unemployed. You know, maybe you have some financial constraints because you don't have a job. So there's a variety of different things that need to be understood. Um, you know, even your sleep. So how many hours of sleep are you getting a day? Is it consistent? Do you wake up feeling well rested or are you, um, you know, tired? 
Uh, do you have issues with sleep latency? So when you go to bed, does it take you a really long time to fall asleep? Are you waking up in the middle of the night? Are you waking up multiple times in the middle of the night, especially to go to the washroom or something like that? Are you waking up with you know a bunch of racing thoughts in your head? All of these things are gonna be really important to know in order to determine what approach is going to be best for you. Okay, so now we've talked a lot about uh, you know, some of the stuff outside of, of the gym, you know, including just general activity level. Um, are you active? Are you getting, you know, a daily step count? Are you cycling to work and back? Are you, you know, just what does your life look like? Um, and then also understanding how your, your relationships might impact this. So let's say you're starting this new dietary adventure and um, maybe your partner's not on board. Maybe they are on board, but in some cases, for some people, maybe they're not on board. Well, you're going to have to invest time into dieting, into training, into all these things. And that's going to take time away from your ability to, sorry, that's going to take time away from, from your relationship, right? So are they okay with that? Uh, are they going to present, you know, is that going to present friction in your relationship? Knowing all of these things is really important in terms of how we're going to navigate the diet. Not necessarily the the like what the diet looks like, but how we're going to get there is really going to be dictated by uh, your lifestyle, your constraints, your preferences, and, and everything else that's going on in there. So um, hopefully you guys can appreciate how important all of those things are. And also just your previous relationship with food, right? Like, do you have a history of chronic dieting? Do you have a history of uh, disordered eating behavior, even if it's subclinical, right? Um, do you have a good relationship with food? Do you don't really think anything of it? Um, are you someone who's really drawn towards the extremes or are you someone who can kind of maintain a balanced approach? Are you the type of individual who can, uh, sorry, who, who's very food focused or are you someone who doesn't really think about it all that much? Um, do you need rigid restraints or constraints to your diet or are you someone who can have a measure of flexibility? Do you, you know, how much do you know about dieting in general? Uh, what's your education like? Do you know what protein, carbs, and fats are? If, if so, can you name some good sources versus some, you know, not so great sources uh, based on what your current goals are and, and so on and so forth? So that's a little bit more along the lines of like the lifter profile. Once we have that, then we can start actually constructing the diet, but we can't construct a diet and try and fit it into an individual's lifestyle. So it's really important that we talk about a lot of that stuff up front. Now, I give you guys a lot of different details and there might be a lot more that needs to be explored uh, for each individual, you know, yourself included, but that's at least going to give you a very good starting point. So from there, then you'd actually look at their goals and you'd say, okay, what do you actually want to accomplish? Right? So let's say, uh, you know, most people when they're dieting, they want to lose weight, all right? They want to get leaner, even if they're, you know, uh, primarily focused on building muscle, if they're focused on, you know, developing strength, most people who are going to be dieting are doing it to get lean, or at least to get a little bit leaner and not get, you know, overly fat. So let's just kind of direct the, um, the, the conversation there, because I think that's going to be a little bit easier. And then we can make a couple of adjustments based on performance, body composition, things like that. Uh, but we'll kind of limit that because I have talked extensively about that and have had uh, guests talk extensively about nutrition for performance and nutrition for bodybuilding on other podcasts um, as well. So I'll kind of stick to that here. Uh, sorry, stick to, to stick to what I was saying previously here. So when it comes to actually setting up your diet, you're going to have to look at what are the low-hanging fruit that we can pick, okay? So again, 
we have to refer back to the individual. So I'm just going to create a hypothetical lifter profile so that I have something to kind of refer back to. So let's say we have an individual who needs to lose about 40 pounds. Um, you know, they generally know how to eat healthy or what to eat and stuff like that, but they don't really have a lot of experience dieting. They don't really know how to implement these behaviors into a consistent routine. Um, you know, they're good in the gym. They've been training consistently for like five years. They're an intermediate, strong intermediate lifter, and their goals are to get a little bit leaner so they can drop, you know, a weight class, but then eventually they want to build back up and blah, 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 be really strong, whatever. Okay. So, First things first, we already know that because they've been lifting consistently for a long time, they've demonstrated the ability to adhere to something. They've demonstrated discipline. They've demonstrated consistency. So already we know that they have a, a good grasp on a lot of the skills that they actually already need in order to be successful at dieting. Now we just need to look at the transferability of those skills. So now we might say, okay, where are the big holes in their diet? Are they getting enough protein? Are they eating too many calories? Are they getting most of their food from highly processed sources as opposed to uh, more whole foods and, and so on and so forth. And so once you start identifying those gaps, then you can look at, you know, what's going to be the easiest thing to do that's going to have the largest magnitude of effect on their outcomes while simultaneously presenting the least amount of friction on their current lifestyle. And I cannot emphasize how important that is. I'm going to say it again. We need to make sure that we initially select variables that are going to have the largest magnitude of effect on the outcomes they're looking for while simultaneously presenting the least amount of friction to their current lifestyle. That does not mean that these things are immutable and they will never change. Obviously, we're going to progress them. However, we need to start where the individual is at. And sometimes where they are at is way even before the beginning line. We're way before what you think that they'd be capable of. You have to regress way, way uh, smaller than that. Now, sometimes it can take a lot more. just depends. So, you know, let's say for this individual, um, their main issue is they're eating too many calories and, you know, their protein is okay, but they're eating, you know, a reasonable amount. I'd say maybe, let's say, 40% of their food is coming from more processed type foods. Now, that doesn't mean it's all junk food. It could be processed foods like sausages or, you know, I don't know, other type foods that have you know, a little bit more processing in them, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. However, they are going to be typically uh, more calorically dense. So if we want to make sure that we can increase this individual's ability to succeed on their diet, we need to make sure we're managing hunger and making things pretty easy. So one of the first things that I typically do is if I want to reduce someone's calories, okay, First, I need to see, are they willing to track calories? Now, let's say in this situation, uh, they're not, okay? Just because some people aren't, and so we'll, we'll just kind of assume that. Well, in that case, I might just add things. I'm a big proponent of uh, elimination through addition, right? So instead of saying, I don't want you to eat X, Y, and Z, I might say, I want you specifically to focus on eating A, B, and C. So... From there, I might, uh, an example of that might be eating uh, X amount of servings of fruits and vegetables every single day, right? So fruits and veggies, uh, especially, you know, if you're not having like the juice or whatever, if you're actually having fruits and vegetables, like raw fruits and vegetables, um, are very satiating. They're very high food volume. They are very low in calories. They are very satiating and they have a ton of food volume. 
uh, as well as fiber, which makes, again, makes them very satiated. So, <coughs> excuse me. Sorry, I'm a little under the weather, guys. So, for instance, if you were to eat 10 servings of fruits and veggies per day, that's a fuck ton of food. You were going to have a really hard time eating as much uh, as, as you would normally eat if you were to eat all of that stuff first. So let's say you have five meals a day. And I tell you, hey, I want you to eat all of your five meals that you normally eat. Don't even change a thing. But before you eat them, I want you to eat one serving of fruit and one serving of veggies before every meal. Now, I probably wouldn't ever do that. I'm just giving this as an example. Um, they will not be able to eat as much, and they probably won't finish all those meals, right? Because they're going to be full from the food volume and the fiber and all that stuff from, from the vegetables and fruit, right? So if you increase their, their fruit and vegetable intake, they're going to be a lot of, uh, getting a lot of nutrient-dense foods, so high-quality foods that are really health-promoting. They're going to improve their gut health very likely. They're going to improve just their general uh, health. And they are also probably going to eat a lot less without even trying, just because they're going to be more full and more satiated. So that's one really easy way to, to do that. So that's a low-hanging fruit that, that we can pick. Uh, another thing we might look at is potentially increasing their step count. Now, I know I'm talking about step count, uh, and, and we're talking about diet. Those things are not unrelated. Your exercise and your nutrition are absolutely related. Um, I have coached athletes on their nutrition who have a separate strength coach, and I will tell you without a doubt, I communicate with the strength coaches. Now, sometimes other coaches aren't you know, willing to communicate. They're kind of reluctant, which is annoying sometimes. However, I will still always look at the program. I'll always get my client to give me their program so I can look at it. I can look at the training days and structure the nutrition appropriately. So we need to make sure that the nutrition is appropriately designed uh, to support their performance if they are a strength or performance-based athlete. So that's really important as well. And walking, cycling, any sort of additional physical activity is going to be part of that equation. So I might look at increasing their step count a little bit, you know, maybe they're very sedentary. Okay, well, if you're really sedentary, guess what? The likelihood of appetite dysregulation is, is a little bit higher if you're sedentary, especially if you're really overweight. So exercise actually helps uh, re-regulate your, your appetite, so to speak, in, in a lot of cases. Now, it does that through a variety of, of, of signaling mechanisms, but additionally, just getting out and getting some exercise and moving is actually going to keep you preoccupied. So if you're going for, let's say, three 30-minute walks a day, guess what you're not doing? You're not eating on those three 30-minute walks, right? It's not time spent at home, bored, alone, and emotional where you're going to be eating and just reaching for food because you're trying to, you know, basically block out all these uncomfortable emotions that, that you're experiencing. And this is very, very common for a lot of people. So there's a variety of reasons why getting out and getting regular exercise can be beneficial and actually help um, decrease the amount of total calories that you're, that you're consuming. Um, and then basically once you have, you know, let's say one, two, maybe three things tops that are very, very simple. Then from there you ride it out because for instance, in this example, let's say the individual in question is only getting 3000 steps a day. And my goal is for them to get 10,000 steps a day. Well, they're probably not going to ace 10,000 steps. They're probably not going to ace, you know, let's still just land on six combined servings of fruits and veggies per day. And, um, you know, they're already doing their workouts, so let's just stick with those two. 
they're probably not going to ace that on their first week, probably not even on their second week, and probably not even on their third week. It might take four or more weeks for them to get it consistent every single day so they're 100% adherent. I will not progress them on these basics until they're 100%. Now, why, you might ask. These are super fucking basic. If they can't nail this 100% of the time, guess what? They're not going to be able to do more complex stuff. Or at least the likelihood of them doing complex stuff and being able to sustain that is going to be much, much less likely. So I'm a big proponent of, especially in the beginning, being cautious about progressions. I want them to demonstrate that they can, without a doubt, handle all of the different tasks that I give them before progressing. I want them to be hungry for more tasks. I want them to be like, fuck, I can do this. Come on. And, and be chomping at the bit for me to give them something extra to do, right? So in that case, I'll say, you know what? If you want to do it, show me. Show me. Be 100% on this. I want you to hit your veggies every single day. Hit your steps every day. You do that. I'll progress you, right? And you make them want it. And you make them want to earn it. And I found that to be incredibly effective. And in the beginning, it's a little bit of a slower start. But then as you build momentum, holy fuck, you go so much further. Like, it's it's almost like that example where... I don't know if you guys remember in, in like junior high or something like that, uh, the teacher would ask you, it's like a math math problem or whatever. They'll say, hey, would you rather have a million dollars today or would you rather have a penny every day, sorry, a penny, and every day we double it for 30 days or something like that. And at the end of like 30 days or 31 days, it ends up being like, you know, 3.6 million or 10 point something million or it's, it's a lot more than a million, essentially, um, which essentially talks about the rate of exponential growth. Because for the first like 25 days, it's only like a thousand or two thousand dollars. But then at the end, it just completely takes off and, and you, you make like 10 million dollars or something along those lines. Now, I don't remember exactly what the numbers are, but that's irrelevant. So it talks about exponential growth. And that's essentially what you get when you build up that base. Um, and then basically, you just rinse and repeat, right? You're monitoring, you're saying, hey, like, am I losing the weight? Or am I, you know, if you're doing this reverse and you're trying to build muscle, am I gaining weight? If you're trying to enhance your performance, how's my performance? Like, what's going on? And so you're monitoring things and then making small adjustments over time to get you from where you are right now to where you want to be with your nutrition. And that's pretty much it. Now, you might have to scale things back or, or take a left turn here and there and do detours if, uh, you know, various things come up, like, let's say, I don't know, vacations, or right now it's the holidays. So so that's kind of something that's pretty popular, uh, or, or Thanksgiving and Christmas and things like that. So there could be a variety of reasons why you might have to temporarily adjust or, or uh, veer off the initial plan in order to ensure long-term success of the diet. And that's perfectly fine. But that's what an iterative sorry, an iterative approach to nutrition looks like. And that's how I typically set up a diet as well as progress a diet. And those are just kind of some examples. But again, depending on how complex you want to get, then you can really get into the weeds of like nutrient timing, even specific foods at specific times um, and things like that, because they're going to have different impacts on your, uh, on, on your recovery and on your results and things like that. So but that's a lot more advanced. And so I think for most people, what I just said is probably going to be the most applicable. Um, and the same principles still apply to high-level individuals. It's just what they're doing is more complex. Uh, so we'll move on to the next question. Next question is, which exercises are best for building your squat? Um, the thing is, like, there, if... 
if we look at the squat, you have to kind of look at what the functions, what the function of a squat is. Okay. So like what's working in a squat, what is your body actually doing? How's it moving through space and what other exercises mimic that or mimic those functionalities to a degree that's going to have the highest level of dynamic correspondence. So once we figure that out, then we can start to get like a general idea, right? So like generally speaking, we need strong quads. Generally speaking, you need a strong back and a strong core. Generally speaking, you need stable and strong hips, okay? But what are the main drivers of a squat? So the main drivers of a squat are going to be your quads. They just are. Everyone who has a big squat is going to have really strong quads. There are hip dominant squatters, there are quad dominant squatters, adductor, hamstring, quad, you know, dominant squatter, all that stuff. But at the end of the day, the quads are for the overwhelming majority of people going to be the rate limiting factor. Uh, you need strong quads. If you have really strong quads, you'll have a big squat. Um, so if we look at it from that perspective, you know, what exercises are going to target your quads? Well, the leg press does a really good job of that, but that's obviously externally stabilized, so it's you know a couple deviations removed from the actual squat. It's also not axial loaded, so you know you're missing that element as well. Uh, if we look at a front squat, well, front squat is axial loaded, and you're loading the crap out of your quads because you're able to maintain uh, a more upright torso and you have more forward knee travel just because of the posture. So that's really going to hit your quads. It's also going to hit your upper back, your spinal rectors, your your your. Uh, your hips a little bit for for the stability aspect. Uh, SSB squats can be great, right? So we can kind of get a general idea of what exercises might be beneficial at targeting the prime movers of a squat, okay? And the things that are really going to drive up your performance. Now, that being said, just because those exercises are generally pretty good does not necessarily mean that they're going to be suitable for uh, every lifter maybe not even most, right? And the reason for that is because of inter-individual differences. So for instance, if I look at a squatter who is, uh, you know, let's take Marissa Enda. Marissa Enda, if you look at her squat, she's got a narrow stance. She has very long femurs. She's tipped forward very, very far and kind of like pancakes into, into her squat and then stands up. Now she's very strong, very experienced. I think she's multiple time world champion, right? but she has a very hip dominant squat and that's because of her structure, right? If you look at her structure, she's going to be relying more on her hips, okay? And so for her, we have to say, what is the bottleneck? Where does she miss a lift? Now, I don't know where Marissa into misses a lift, right? Um, but if she's relying on her hips and she's missing the lift coming out of the hole, well, that may be an indication that her quads aren't quite strong enough. And so maybe she will have to do exercises that are going to uh, preferentially target her quads. Now, will she be able to do a front squat very effectively if she's super tipped forward? No, she won't. So it's not necessarily going to mimic her squat. However, in this case, we might actually want it to mimic, sorry, it, we might actually want it to be a little different because we do want to load the shit out of her quads and we want to take the hips out of the equation because she's already very strong being a hip dominant squatter. So in that case, a front squat could potentially be great, even a zombie squat to really take it up a notch. Um, now, let's say you have another individual 
who's a super upright squatter. They have a more wide stance. They freaking blow the squat, you know, out of the hole. And then about, you know, halfway up or something like that, they just kind of get pinned and they cannot finish and, and that's it. Okay, well, that person's probably got weak hips and or adductors, okay? Most likely it's, you know, their, their hip structure is a little bit weak and so we need to target that. So what are gonna be some good exercises for that, right? Um, well, we could look at good mornings. We could look at stiff leg deadlifts. We could look at RDLs. We could look at, uh, you know, hip thrusts, although I'm not really a big fan of hip thrusts just because I don't really think that it has any translation into a uh, squat, especially not for a high level lifter. There's just way too much, like it, it's too many standard deviations removed from the squat to really be applicable in, in the overwhelming majority of cases. So, um, you know, you can, you can start looking at more hip dominant type activities. Uh, you could do, <clears throat> um, yeah, so you could do, like I said, good mornings. You could do uh, stiff legs. You could do RDLs. You could do block pulls. You could do uh, box squats, uh, squatting in a particular way to really load the hips a lot more. Um, there's a variety of different things that you can do. But again, the main difference here is what is the requirement? So in both of these, we're just talking about muscular deficiencies. So a muscular deficiency is going to be pretty easy to address um, because you can just choose exercises that are gonna build up those muscles. Now, if someone is you know, lacking in quad uh, or knee extension strength, you could do leg press and that may very well bring up their squat, right? Because they just need stronger quads. Their technique's already good, everything's looking good. They just need more volume on those fucking quads to get them stronger. So doing that might work. Or, you know, increasing, uh, you know, it, it, sorry, changing, changing to another exercise or whatever, maybe increasing the frequency or exposures or whatever it might be. So there's a variety of different things you can do. But what if they maybe don't have a muscular imbalance? What if they're actually pretty balanced? Like their hips are really strong, their quads are really strong, they don't really have any glaring weaknesses. And this is something that you get fairly often in advanced athletes where it's like, someone's been training for 15 years, man, it's going to be pretty hard to find a glaring weakness in, in their game, right? If they're, if they're high level. So what do you do then? Well, you can start looking at, you know, more, more complex things, right? You can start looking at, um, you know, how you're adjusting volume load, how you're cycling things. You can start looking at the frequency of exposures. You can start looking at work density. You can start looking at aerobic fitness. You can start looking at, um, um, the the actual proximity from one session to another or sorry one exposure to another so like if you're squatting once every six days or something like that what if you squatted once every five days what if you were to you know have an a b week what if you were to uh, have a 2x frequency what if you were to you know what i mean there's a million different things you can do in in that sense um and it's going to be a little bit more complicated than just what exercise should you do now, generally, even for advanced athletes, you're still going to have kind of your go-to, like, you know, playlist of, of which exercises you tend to find uh, has high translation to your actual competition squat. But um, generally, it's also a lot more complicated than just that. Now, for a novice, um, novices need a lot of technical development. So novices will get a ton stronger doing pretty much anything. And that's irrespective of any additional muscle being gained. So what that says is the majority of their strength gains initially are coming from motor learning and, and neurological 
development and acquisition of different skills. So when I talk about skill acquisition, we're talking about stability. Uh, we're talking about how they're executing the movement and being able to coordinate, you know, these, these sort of complex tasks, so to speak. So being able to hinge while simultaneously bending at your knees and maintaining rigidity and doing it all in the correct sequence and blah, 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 blah. So for them, a lot of the times they need uh, more exposure to those lifts that they need to get good at, right? If, if you're just learning how to box and you decide that you're going to box once a week, but then play tennis, hockey, and rugby three other days of the week, well, you're probably not going to get a whole lot better at boxing because you're too new and you haven't adapted to develop those skills required for the sport. So in the beginning, you need a high enough frequency to ensure skill acquisition happens at an appropriate rate. Uh, the second thing that you actually should do is increase exercise variety. So exercise variety has actually been shown to enhance the rate of motor learning as well as the total scope of motor learning. So if you're learning how to squat, but then you're also doing maybe deadlifts or good mornings or maybe a split squat or um, just movements in general that somewhat mimic whatever it is that you're going to try and that you want to develop, there's generally a pretty high carryover. Right, and and it's because you're just being exposed to more, and so your body's learning what to do and also what not to do, and that's going to allow them to, to kind of hone in on what they need to do in order to develop their uh, their proficiency at the execution of the squat. Um, what exercise should I are best for building squat? Yeah, so so that's that's kind of the long and the short of it, right? So you have technical issues, you have muscular. Uh, deficiencies and then you're also going to be looking at just things outside of the actual exercise or the implement that you're using like I said velocity or, or loading wave loading or whatever the fuck you're using with accommodating resistance or anything you, you know as you get better you're gonna have to start being a little bit more creative with that stuff if you need to sometimes you don't need to like I've had athletes who are very very strong I don't need to really do anything creative I just need to get the fundamentals right and they're gonna progress other people, you need to be a little bit more creative, but uh, but we'll see. Uh, so I think that's enough for that, and we will move on to the last question, which is, can you talk about the mental health benefits of exercise and nutrition? Well, yes, I can. So first, I'm actually going to take a sip because I'm getting a little, a little dry mouth. All right, so... Um, I'm actually currently finishing up an article on uh, men's mental health. Uh, I found out that it was Men's Mental Health Month in November, apparently. I didn't realize we had a Men's Mental Health Month. I don't necessarily know that it's necessary. Uh, not really big on a lot of these fads, but it does spread the, uh, the awareness of men's mental health, so that's going to be a net positive in my mind. Um, but that being said, there's a lot of things, and I'll expand a lot more in, in the article on this, but I'll, I'll touch on a couple of them here. Some of the most impactful non-pharmacological interventions for mental health, specifically depression and other you know, mood disorders. Physical exercise, nutrition, 
good sleep, social engagement and connection. There's other things there as well that are on that list, but those are the four that I chose to highlight for a couple of reasons. One, exercise. Well, when you work out, you exercise, so it's pretty damn obvious. Nutrition. Well, if you're eating like shit and you're feeling like shit all the time, the likelihood of that, you know, adding or having like an additive effect on, on depressive symptoms that you may or may not have uh, is pretty damn likely. So getting your nutrition right is going to make you feel better. If you feel better, it's just one less thing that you have to worry about. You don't feel like shit all the time. You know, imagine you were hungover every day. You'd probably feel like crap and you probably would not be in a very good mood. Well, if you're eating like shit all the time, you're probably going to feel like shit all the time as well. And especially if you are dealing with some sort of mental health issue, if you're dealing with depression or anxiety or whatever, that's just going to be an additional burden that you have to deal with, right? So dialing in your diet can be very impactful. Um, uh, the third is, is sleep, right? And the reason why I add sleep into here when it comes to exercise and nutrition is if you're training and you care at all about your performance, you're probably also going to be getting better rest. You're going to be looking for ways to optimize your, your lifestyle in general. So how can I get more rest so I can perform better? How can I get better quality sleep? How can I do all these things so that I can enhance my training performance? Well, that's going to have a beneficial effect on your psychology as well, right? It's going to impact, uh, again, depressive symptoms and other mood disorder type symptoms. Uh, it's going to help with anxiety. It's going to help with your resiliency. It's going to help with your ability to tolerate different stress uh, or yeah, stress load. So it's going to increase your stress load so that you can actually tolerate a little bit more and you have, let's say, a larger buffer before you sort of reach that critical threshold where, where now you've exceeded your tolerance. Um, so sleep is incredibly important. Also, just subjective evaluations of, of uh, you know, quality of life and happiness and blah, 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 blah. Also improve when you have better quality sleep and you just feel a little bit better. Um, and lastly, social connection and meaningful engagement or social engagement, meaningful connection. Sorry, I'll switch those around. Um, when you go to the gym, typically you make a lot of friends, you know, or maybe not a lot, but you make friends. You meet people. You say, what's up? You say, what's going on? Like you, you talk to people. Even if it's just the front desk. Social engagement is incredibly important. We are social creatures. And I know a lot of people say that, but I don't think they necessarily understand the extent of, of how significant that is. Like if you leave a baby alone and they have no one there, no connection, they can actually die. I'm not talking about dying from starvation or dying from any of that other stuff. Like they can actually just die because of the lack of social connection. Um, I've certainly read about that. And like you can develop significant health issues down the road if, if babies don't get enough actual attention when they are, um, when, when they're born with children, if you look at adolescents, when they don't get enough attention, when they don't get enough like love and care and all these things, they can develop significant psychological issues down the road. They become antisocial and develop like all sorts of different shit, right? So social connection is super fucking important. And one thing that I will say is I'm not a clinician, I'm not a psychologist. So if, if some of the stuff that I said is maybe a little inaccurate or something like that, okay, whatever. Don't fucking at me in the comments. It's not really the point. The point is that social connection is incredibly important. Um, and you can feel free to, to read up on it all you'd like. So a lot of those things are, are sort of part and parcel of the gym and gym culture in general, right? So when you look at it that way, um, I mean, it can have a really profound impact on you, you know? Uh, if you look at also mental health, uh, and this is specific for, for men seeking mental health as well, um, I believe one study that I, that I was reviewing 
found that 50% of men who eventually got, uh, uh, sorry, took advantage of, of mental health services were um, from unsolicited individuals. They were, it was through, un, yeah, unsolicited uh, referrals from, from other individuals. So these are from uh, medical providers. These are from just individuals that were in their social circle. So friends, family, people that they kind of currently trusted who were like, hey, you know what? I know you've been struggling. Have you ever thought about maybe getting, seeing a psychologist or doing something like this? And that's 50%. Now, granted, this is only one study, so you can't necessarily say that 50% across the board are, are due to unsolicited uh, encounters, right? But that's a meaningful number. So even if it's 20% or 10%, that's, that's still a lot. So the probability that you might run into someone who, if you're struggling with some mental health issues, may even just suggest that, which may prompt you to go and seek out proper uh, health services, it does go up. Right. So there's a variety of different things that are, you know, a little bit more indirect, a little bit more nebulous and hard to hard to quantify, but still exist nonetheless. Um, coming back to actual exercise, though, there's a lot of different things that physically change in your body um, during exercise. So, you know, there what was it? There was that runner's high where they talked about the release of endorphins. But recently they reviewed and they found out that it's actually not the endorphins. It's something else. That gives you that sense of like euphoria. So it's not the endorphins. It's something else. I can't remember off the top of my head. I'd have to actually pull up that paper again. I read it several months ago, so it's not quite fresh in my memory anymore. Um, but the physiological changes that actually occur uh, as a result of aerobic fitness or sorry, aerobic, aerobic training and resistance training and all that stuff are pretty profound. Um, memory consolidation is incredibly important, and exercise is one of the biggest things that actually uh, can can stave off. Uh, memory loss and psychological deterioration over time in the elderly, right? Um, it's the number one thing, actually. Um, you know, being physical just makes you feel better. It makes you more resilient. It actually makes you more stress tolerant as well. <laughs> so you can handle uh, more stressful situations. Like I was saying, it kind of expands your scope of tolerance. Um, so there's a variety of different things that you can do. Also, if you look better, if you feel better, if you perform better, well, I mean, that's I find it really hard that that's not going to have some sort of positive impact. I find it hard to, to believe that it's not going to have some sort of positive impact on your psychology in general. Um, and then beyond that, there's also um, the idea that you're doing something that's, you know, possibly meaningful to you. Now, not everyone is going to really love the gym and be all about it, but a lot of people do. Like a non-negligible portion of the individuals who go and train that's a big part of their lives. So if you're doing something that's meaningful to you and you're getting better and you're seeing progress, that can kind of be like an anchor for your life almost. You know, I certainly know that when times were really, really tough for me, like before I started working at uh, uh, Kabuki, like during, you know, the very beginning of COVID when everything was locked down and um, the, the gym that I just started working at, I moved across the country. I just started working at a gym. COVID came, shut down. I was now out of a job and I was like, fuck, what am I going to do? You know, so I was actually coaching at in person at a gym. Um, that was a big deal. And it was really stressful. I was in the other side of the country. Rent was crazy expensive. I was going through my savings basically uh, to, to kind of get by. And I 
wasn't necessarily sure what I was going to do. So I was like, okay, maybe I'll just start doing this and this and this. But the one thing that really kept me sane was I was still exercising. I don't care if I was going to a playground at midnight to work out. I was exercising every fucking day. So for me, that was able to anchor me and keep me, you know, basically from blowing my brains out because I was just like, man, this fucking sucks. Like, you know, I, I feel like I'm at a standstill in terms of my career and all this other stuff that was going on. So that was a really, really important thing for me was exercise. And I know a lot of people feel the exact same way where, you know, there's shit going on in your life, but you go into the gym and you have your community, you have your people there. And it's just like, you know what? This is the really good thing that's going on in my life. I'm getting great results. I'm getting stronger. I'm getting leaner. I'm getting more jacked or whatever the heck it is that you're working towards. And it's something that you can really be proud of. It's something that you can take a lot of pride in. It's something that you can uh, be very happy about. It's something you can enjoy. It's something you look forward to. It's struggle. It's challenge. But it's it's this thing that no matter what, you can always look to it. And even if things aren't necessarily going really, really well in your training, it's still there for you. You know, and so I think that that's a really undervalued uh, benefit of it as well. And that's again, it's a very nebulous thing. But at the same time, just because something's not necessarily easily quantifiable, doesn't mean that there's no benefit. It doesn't mean that the benefit doesn't exist. So that's something that I think is incredibly important: is the fact that the gym acts as an anchor for a lot of people to provide stability in otherwise tumultuous times. So. Uh, I think that's it. That uh, That's pretty much all I have to say about that. Um, if you guys are wanting to look into the mental health thing, like I said, that article is probably going to be released at the end of the month sometime. Uh, I'll be posting it up on my Instagram. So if you don't follow me on Instagram, stop being dicks. And I'm just joking. Uh, make sure you go over there and follow me. Say what's up. I always love connecting with people. I try and send every single person who follows me a direct voice message or whatever so you know it's me and it's not just like some random assistant or something like that because uh, i genuinely do like connecting with people i like talking i like answering questions and stuff like that so make sure you go over there i'll be posting that article up once it is published and uh yeah thanks so much for watching guys make sure you share subscribe blah 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 all that stuff tell your friends about the podcast so i can uh, stop being homeless and um yeah that's it i'll see you guys later